Hello, and welcome to Behind the Scaffolding, a podcast where we talk to writing teachers about the hows and whys of what we do in the classroom. Coming to you from the University of Michigan, I'm Gina Brandolino. And I'm Angie Berkeley. Gina, how are you feeling? You know, Ange, it's the end of the semester, and uh, <laughs> that question couldn't be coming at a worse time. I feel like this has been a semester of feelings, and now all the feelings are really here. Oh, so many feelings, so many feelings here at the end. And that's what this episode with our colleague from the Sweetland Center for Writing, Scott Beal, is all about. Scott teaches classes on composition, digital writing, poetry, race and ethnicity, online dating, and fantasy world building, and teaches poetry to fifth and sixth graders at Ann Arbor Open School. He describes his teaching by telling us that he spends a lot of time trying to convince students that weirder is better. And his latest essay assignment for his first year writing students is simply called WTF. We talked with Scott because even though, as you'll hear, he claims not to be an authority or anything, he's a teacher with tons of emotional intelligence and lots to say about how inescapable our feelings are when we teach, which I think we can all say is maybe even more true now in this era of pandemic teaching when everyone's feelings, students and teachers alike, are a little more raw than usual. Yes, that is definitely true. But it's interesting, even though dealing with the realities of teaching during a pandemic, which are still affecting us, may have made us all more aware of our feelings, our conversation with Scott kind of reminded me of just how much our feelings are always informing our teaching, whether we realize it or not. Yep, that's true. And one of the things that's so great about this conversation, I think, is how deftly Scott deflates these sort of vague assumptions that so many of us have about how we need to have a particular boundary or distance between our students and ourselves. That, of course, our feelings aren't seeping into the mix, but of course they are. And that's not always a bad thing. Yeah, right. All right. Let's have a listen. Scott, we are super happy to have you on the podcast uh, for this episode because I think and have often said that you are particularly emotionally astute teacher. And I know that you insist that you have no special, you know, sort of Yoda, you know, sense of emotions in the classroom or or no special training. Um, But that's not even what I mean when I say it. I just think that you are an emotionally and especially emotionally astute person. And that carries over to your teaching and ways that show you to be sort of um, aware of the ways that emotions enter into teaching. And we thought that, you know, given that you might be somebody who could speak about the ways that feelings make teaching especially rich or productive, especially given that I feel like as teachers, we're often kind of told or we learn that feelings just make everything messy, you know, and you should try to keep them out of the classroom or at least put boundaries around them, um, so on and so forth. So we wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit, a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, I'll try. Uh, I appreciate, Gina, I appreciate you saying that whole spiel based on what I just told you about not wanting to seem like I was the self-appointed expert on feelings. So thank you for making that clear. Also, man, I I guess, yeah, Angie, you, you said the thing about how we are told that feelings are messy and we should keep them out of the classroom. Uh, I don't, where does that come from? Because, yeah, I don't know. Um. This, maybe this isn't the best place to start, but I feel um, 
I recently discovered our the subreddit R Professors. Oh, I'm on that. You are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After seeing it for a couple of weeks, I feel like seventy five percent of what I see on it is contempt for students. Mm-hmm. You know? Like so mm-hmm. much complaining about like students aren't giving formal greetings in their emails or. Uh, or here's 20 ways in which I think my my students are conniving liars and uh, and my ways of getting revenge on them, you know? And mm-hmm. so much of, like, everybody else being like, yeah, get them, you know? Um, <laughs> and, so, and I think some of the, like, coldness of applying, like, syllabus policies and certainly the coldness of the way in which they're written are attempts to uh, to avoid having feelings drive the way you approach things but they themselves are driven by these feelings of i think uh antagonism or fear of being disrespected or fear of being taken advantage of that are just as powerful and students pick up on those things um so there's no way to avoid feelings in the classroom our feelings usually start well before we ever get to the classroom, you know? Um, I have stage fright pretty much every day before class of some sort, you know? It usually goes away as soon as I walk in the door and see them. But, like, <laughs> as I'm getting ready, I have these feelings of, um, oh, God, how horribly wrong could this go? Or, you know... <laughs> um, and uh, I hope I do, you know, I hope my students don't pick up on that affect, but, uh, but there is, yeah, I mean, I, I think a certain amount of worry about my own performance, there's always a certain amount of worry about my students and how they're doing, um, especially as the semester goes on and some of them seem to kind of drop out to various degrees or kind of have troubles to various degrees. Um, and yeah, and but uh, also then once I, you know, I think hopefully warmth and compassion um, and enthusiasm are emotions that come out once I once I'm in the classroom, you know, um, and certainly away from the, from the classroom too. But I think that I don't know. Yeah, when I think about it, there's like a switch that goes on when I get into class that that goes from you know whatever kind of like sheepishness or or uh, anxiety I have about the class that uh, turns into enthusiasm. Like I I really do, when I see them, feel enthusiastic about seeing them. And I really do feel enthusiastic about the material usually. Um, And I think it's important to show that. I think class goes much better when they can see that you're enthusiastic about the material. I've certainly had instructors in my time who did not seem enthusiastic about the material. And those were the worst classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, I, in my experience, too, I think enthusiasm goes a long way. <laughs> but I mean, I wonder if sometimes, you know, so much of what you were saying about syllabus policies and the coldness of those policies and instructors getting mad, for example, if, if they don't use doctor, if they don't, you know, whatever, like those those are like protective you know they sound so protective they sound like efforts to protect one's emotions you know i mean and i don't know enthusiasm is a way of being vulnerable like enthusiasm is a way of saying i love this right which maybe is for some a little scary 
Yeah, I'm, if you're enthusiastic about something and your audience doesn't share your enthusiasm, you can look ridiculous. Right. <laughs> uh, there's a, oh gosh, the, I haven't thought of it. There's a T.C. Boyle story called Sorry Fugu that I used to teach a long time ago. And it's about, uh, it's about a food critic at kind of at war with this restaurant. Um, actually, I'm not going to recommend the story because in hindsight, there's some real consent problems with it. But uh, because, because this restaurateur kind of ends up kind of forcing this food critic to eat food in the back room against her will in a way. But like, yeah. <laughs> and so you guys can decide whether you want this to actually be part of the podcast or not. <laughs> but but part of the point of the story, like there's a place where the food critic says that um, there's there's a real risk in uh, in saying you like something, that it's much easier to say you hate things, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like it, her role in the story is the food critic that hates everything, you know? And the challenge is this restaurateur wants to like impress her, be the first chef to impress her. And like the whole point is that, yeah, she hates eating as a self-protection, you know, like as a way of like protecting herself from ever having to take that vulnerable risk, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a way in which you can seem silly if you love something that turns out not to be good, you know, or, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I don't know. So I don't know if that's a reason people back away from enthusiasm in the classroom, the whole like doctor stuff, like I can understand especially for women and people of color, um, the insistence on being called by an official earned title of respect. Um, And it's much easier, I think, for me to say like, nah, just call me Scott because I don't, you know, because I'm given a certain default level of credibility. Um, Also, I'm not a doctor, so, you know. (laughs) But I mean, I still have students who like, when I tell them to call me by my name, they're like, what? Are you sure? But yeah, I mean, so I don't know. I I think that there are there are reasons, and especially like for um, for people who are not cishet white men, there are reasons to want to be addressed with honorifics. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know. I think that it's one thing to want to be acknowledged as like with respect, and it's another thing to. Uh, create more distance between you and your students than is necessary, right? We need to have boundaries, but not like distance. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about like what kind of boundaries you think are helpful, like either for you as a teacher or for the students? Yeah, well, yeah. So I think some of them should be obvious, you know, like we are not there to be their best friends. We're not there to hang out with them outside of class or like in, in a way that is like, um, like we shouldn't be going out for beer with our undergraduates or inviting them back to our houses. You know, like some of the, some of the boundaries are very obvious, but I also think there are times when my students will trust me with certain personal information about like um, trouble with their home living situation or trouble with a sexual assault, things that are very difficult to deal with or troubles with mental health that they're currently going through that are making things terrible. Um, and I, it's important for me to be able to like 
listen to the things they want to tell me, be an advocate for them, to try to to try to steer them towards appropriate resources on campus that can help them with those things. Um, but I am not their therapist, and it does no good to me or them for me to try to be their therapist, right? So I think that's what I mean in terms of like, there are some boundaries we have to have. But when I th- say we don't want distance, you know, like uh, we also shouldn't be trying to treat them coldly or adversarially, you know, trying to protect ourselves from them or, you know, or there's like the, the, the bullshit of like a professor who is like, I don't even answer their emails if they don't address me as dear professor X at the beginning, you know, like, right. Uh, like that's unnecessarily creating a, a kind of a gatekeeping uh, barrier for students to communicate with you uh, that, yeah, that creates excess distance that just makes it harder for them to learn, harder for them to care. And like them caring is just as important as us caring. You know, part of the role of, of using emotion well in the class is to... <laughs> is to create a create an environment where they care about the material, where they care about their performance um, and this kind of shared learning that you're trying to do in the classroom community. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what what you just said uh, reminds me of, of that switch that you talked about going on when you enter the classroom where you move from sheepishness to enthusiasm. And it made me think back actually to our very first episode when we talked to uh, Trisha Clef about basically about the first day, um, not mm-hmm. of the podcast, but it was the first day of the podcast, but also the first day of class. And we talked about all of us sort of admitted to feeling sort of like a clown on the first day, you know, sort of big outsized enthusiasm, um, you know, you know, sort of tripping all over yourself, being it. that I still feel every day that I've taught a first class from the first, you know, the first time I taught a first class till to this semester, I have felt that and I feel like it is a performance of it's okay to be excited here. You know, it's a performance of my feeling that gives them permission to have a certain kind of feeling too. And it, you know, it's maybe the, the first day is it's important to do that because you can establish this is a safe place to, to nerd out on something. Right. 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 And I'll say, I feel like I'm doing that perhaps even more when I'm teaching in a mask, because I feel like it's this veil between myself and them, like talk about distance, right? And so I'm, I'm doing it even more just because I, I want them to know, <laughs> and because I'm trying to get them to like, give it back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like gesture becomes more important when in a mask, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I've seen this affect from from teachers that are like, I'm I'm here to teach the material. I'm not here to entertain you, and I get that. Like that's that's reasonable to an extent. And not everyone's strength is, you know, entertainment. You know, like, but um, at the same time, like, what's wrong with being a little bit of a clown? Actually, you know, um, and like, what are you afraid of? Trying to be interesting trying to be enthusiastic i like one thing i missed with remote teaching is being able to use a whiteboard in front of the class and like there's whiteboard tools on zoom 
But for me, using a whiteboard is a physical activity of turning to them, asking for information, turning to the board and excitedly scribbling it in front of them. So they see, you know, like, yes, I value this thing you said, I'm putting it here and I'm turning back. And, and sometimes when I'm waiting for them, I will be like, like physically rocking back and forth from like one foot to the other, waiting for the next thing. And I will see that they, they will like chuckle, like, like, wow, Scott is really into this. And I am really into this. And I want them to see that. I don't care if it's like, yeah, it's fine if it's kind of funny. Like, but I also, it helps make them comfortable with like saying more stuff, you know, adding more to the list, at least thinking about it, wanting to contribute. Because here I am like physically modeling how I'm like ready, waiting, you know, like a I don't know, like a like an avatar in like Street Fighter or something, kind of going back and forth. Oh, right, how they can't stay still. Yeah. <laughs> Only it's like school teacher, not yeah, Street exactly, Fighter. Exactly, like like Street Fighter with like a piece of chalk in one hand and an eraser in the other, like. <laughs> and a mask on. Don't forget the mask. And a mask on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think we all know that there are teachers out there who would say, "I, I'm unwilling to do this work." And also, I feel unprepared to do this work. Um, and I wonder, like, what would you say to those teachers? Not to, you know, not to, you know, shame or condemn them, but to say, okay, well, try these three things. Here are some things you could try to sort of open yourself up to the way feelings can improve the situation in your classroom for you and your students. So, yeah, remember the part where I never said I was the expert? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm also a little bit confused by the question, right? Like, how can you not be willing to have feelings in the classroom or to to, to accommodate, like, to, to acknowledge and work with them? Because I think, as I started with, everything we do in the classroom is driven in some way by feelings, you know? None of us is an automaton who, who spouts data to our students you know so we are whether we want to be or not driven by emotion as our teaching personas and so i think like just a little bit more mindfulness about how our feelings are playing out in the classroom is something that i don't know how you could really be opposed to that idea there is a choice we can make and this is a simple choice, and I, and I hope most of us make the right choice on this, but there is a choice we can make between seeing our students as our adversaries that are there for us to control and manage, or, there's a, or seeing them as our allies in a process of, of shared learning, you know? That's a choice that can make all the difference. And being attuned to your own emotional temperature when you're being driven by one side of that more than the other is a good way to know, at least is, is helpful information to have when you're making choices that affect your students' outcomes and your, you know, what, how you're going to answer that email or how you're going to answer that comment in the class discussion or how you're going to respond to a request for an extension on a paper when someone says, uh, you know, I also have three other papers due this week and a, and a part-time job. Just a small change in attitude, it seems like. 
an acknowledgement of the person on the other side of the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough to, to counsel anything more than that necessarily. You know, I think because we all have different emotional, you know, I, I the way I emotionally approach a class is going to be different from the way anyone else does. But I think being um, like slowing down a little bit and thinking more carefully about how our emotions are driving our teaching is something that everyone can do to make your pedagogy better. What else we got? How are we doing on the questions? Uh, we talked a, tie, a little bit about gender, but I think that's the only one that we haven't really touched on. I was like, I when I saw, so you guys sent me the questions. Yeah. Right? Like, like he, here's the question as you guys have written it. Often emotional labor is gendered. Is this true in teaching too? You know better than to ask this as a yes or no question. What kind of garbage <laughs> teaching modeling is that? Right? <laughs> I'm feeling very attacked right now. <laughs> but like, but this is, I think this is important, right? Like, I think the bar is so low for me as a, as a cishet man, actually, you know, I'm not expected to have emotional awareness in the classroom or outside of it because, um, because patriarchy sucks, you know, and like, so I also think, so this, this works in a couple of ways. Yeah, I think it makes it very easy for me um, to be, I don't to, to have the smallest things recognized as being decent, you know? Uh, and I think that, of course, the way that, um, the way that emotional responses or engagements get read by women is different by people of color is different. You know, I can, I can make a, I don't do this very often, but I can make a sarcastic remark to a student in class and have it laughed off in a way that if I was a person of color, I could probably get in trouble for, you know, like um, I would be read as being divisive or mean or overly critical, you know, women and people of color and especially women of color have to deal with a lot more scrutiny of their emotions um, or their, you know, the way their emotions are read by students, by other faculty, by administrators than, than I have to deal with. And, uh, and that sucks. And I don't really know what to do about it. I also think by the, by the same token, women, are expected so they're they're sort of more under siege is what I hear you saying and I totally agree but they're also expected more to do the kinds of emotional labor that we've been talking about right like I know male teachers who you know feel feel like they can sort of back away from a student crying you know or you know or you know sort of back away from a hard conversation or, you know, not get involved uh, with a student who's having emotional problems. Um, but I don't know a lot of female teachers who, who feel like they can do that or who would do that. And that has to do, you know, with super ingrained expectations our culture has about um, gender. And I feel like it puts uh, female teachers on the hook in a really unique way that I don't even think institutions 
even if they recognize it, have really reckoned with how to help with, you know, you know, how to how to deal with that, um, you know, sort of imbalance. And I would add too that like as a woman or like for a, a female or a person of color teacher, like additional emotional labor is also thinking to yourself, okay, like what I really, what feels natural to me, what feels human to me is to say, don't worry about it. Like just hand it in when you can, but then to have to think, oh, but if I do that, they're going to take advantage of me, you know, because I'm a woman, they're going to think I'm soft. They're going to think, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's this other calculus that works the other way, right? I, was, I mean, so what we're contending with is the whole morass of cultural biases, right? That don't start in the classroom or even in the university, right? They're deep-seated. Our students bring them to classes with them. We bring them to classes. The institutions have them embedded, right? And... On an and so it makes good sense to, like, to to try to fight back against that at an institutional level, right? To try to to try to, uh, you know, like that knowledge that you have, Angie, or or that and like that that an instructor has that is like, if I if I if I extend this compassion or this flexibility, I won't be taken as seriously. My teaching won't be seen as rigorous, you know, like. Um, like we certainly need to contend against that at an institutional level, you know, together we can work against those, like, but we can't do that individually in our class. Like yeah. every day in your classroom, you still just have to be the, you have to think about like what kind of a teacher you want to be, you know, like what kind of person do you want to be to your students? Yeah. Right. Is there ever a time that you feel a need to protect yourself? Is there a time when, emotions get to be too much in a classroom. Um, I mean, the emotions are going to be there one way or another, right? So, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I, I hear an answer that's going to come out of your mouth as they're going to be there whether you want to acknowledge them or not. But what do you do when there's too much or when things have gone too far? Can you even imagine like an example when that has happened? I've had situations where I was worried about my students' safety in ways that were um, pretty difficult to deal with. But what can you do? <laughs> Not care? Um, some, you know, I've had a student, I've had students, I've had a student in an email you know, like not directly threaten to take their own life, but certainly intimate that they're thinking about it. And I have followed up by, I don't, I'm not equipped to deal with that, you know? And I can try to contact, you know, every advisor I know who might have an, an in with the student. I can try to contact DPS to like stop by and see if they're okay. Um, I don't know that I trust DPS to perform that role in all circumstances, you know? So that's a problem too. I don't say that because I have any particular beef with our particular DPS as better or worse than any others. I just think that police have clearly shown that they're not equipped to deal with mental health calls, right? Um, in many cases. So um, I think that that's a, that's a 
you know, I think that's a tough situation, you know, or, or a student who hasn't been to class for two weeks who you knew was having, um, you know, uh, emotional, psychological distress and then just vanishes, you know, like I have a hard time dealing with that. On the other end of the spectrum, having to confront students about plagiarism is really difficult for me, um, you know, <laughs> but like, these are things that like those are conversations you have to have too and the more antagonistic you make them the less helpful you can be i think or you know i honestly i don't know where i'm going with this i think there are moments though when it's hard i think also when someone says something in class that seems like it's hurtful to another student in class like those are moments where everyone's emotions all three, all of those situations are, I think, situations where it's not only my emotional state that I'm concerned about, but my students' emotional state at the same time. And try, and knowing that we're all in distress and trying to figure out how do we navigate that distress together when our goals aren't always the same. Those are the toughest. Those are the toughest. Right. And there's that feeling of responsibility for the class, you know, for your students and how they're all feeling, which is hard. And honestly, I think those are the moments, Gina, that you and I have most often talked about when one or the other of us has had a moment like that, a moment where something um, something confrontational happened in the classroom or out of the classroom with the student or one of us had to have a conversation with the student about um, like an academic integrity issue that we were dreading, you know, like, I think those are the times when you and I have had to be like a little bit of a, like a, uh, like a guidepost for each other, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is also, I think another important thing about this, like we can't do this alone. We need each other for like pedagogy advice and assignment structuring advice, but we also just need each other for like uh, emotional support, <laughs> Well, and steering, right? Like, so, you know, to be the, you know, the lodestar when we need a lodestar. What's interesting about all the examples, like when I thought, you know, I think you interpreted that question as what are the worst possible things that could happen, (laughs) which is about right, you know, but what's interesting is that in no case could you be like, all right, I'm out, (laughs) you know, like that was never an option. No, no. I mean, I think yeah the only time that that's possible is once the semester's over and then you get a few weeks to like decompress and then you start up again and there you have it folks feelings we hope you're feeling all the good feels today and feeling ready to bring them into your classrooms thanks to the podcasting the humanities virtual institute which i attended this summer and which is facilitated by the national humanities center in cooperation with san diego state university and especially to Pam Lack, our virtual podcasting guru. And thanks to you for listening.